is looking at you. Hello and welcome to the Here's Looking at You podcast, a podcast where we explore the intersections of gender, sexuality and performance. I'm Dr Ellen Wright, Senior Lecturer in Cinema and Television History at De Montfort University, and I specialise in the representation of gender and sexuality in Hollywood in the first half of the 20th century. In today's podcast, I'm talking with Desiree Embray in a special edition of Here's Looking at You, recorded and released to coincide with a Midlands Four Cities funded postgraduate archival research training event that my colleague Justin Smith and I have arranged in collaboration with James Chapman and Claire Jenkins at the University of Leicester. Desiree is an archival researcher and PhD candidate in the Department of English at Texas A&M University. Her dissertation, titled Private Pleasures, Public Provocations, Dyke Porn in the Late 20th Century, is a cultural history of lesbian-produced sexual entertainment media in the 1980s and 1990s. The work I think is particularly pertinent for attendees at our Postgraduate Archives Training Day is a piece of work tantalisingly entitled Archive Trouble. In it, Desiree talks about what brought her to archival research and about the institutional and methodological pleasures and pitfalls that such research can offer. Particularly notable here are the absences that Desiree had to work around. In our conversation, we discuss a number of issues at the heart of Desiree's work and the aims and objectives of the archive in question. The materials that Desiree explores in her research are materials linked to pornography produced by and for the sex-positive lesbian feminist community. So as a historian then, Desiree's work not only engages in part with reclaiming a narrative or with issues around respectability that are so often linked to pornography, but with the fraught politics of the sex wars, whilst examining issues around access and visibility and by implication around agency and ownership. Just to give you a heads up, you'll hear workmen in the background of this particular interview. There was little we could do about it, but Desiree soldiered on and I'm sure it won't affect your enjoyment of what she actually discusses. So hello and welcome to Here's Looking at You. Today I have the the privilege of talking to the lovely Desiree Embry uh, about her work uh, in archives um, I'm very excited to talk to her. Hello, Desiree. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I wondered if we could talk a little bit about you before we talk about your work. Uh, I was going to ask you about um, yourself and how you slot into your work, your influences, like scholar-wise, that sort of thing, key interests. Sure. I'm a graduate assistant lecturer in the Department of English at Texas A&M University here in the States. I'm also the graduate representative for the Society of Cinema and Media Studies Adult Film History Scholarly Interest Group. Such a mouthful. Um, So I work primarily on lesbian sexuality in film, and my current project is a history of lesbian-produced pornography in the 1980s. So I came to this project um, sort of in a roundabout way. I I wasn't sure what I wanted to study in graduate school. I knew that I was interested in issues of sort of women, representation, film. And I started looking into sort of sexuality and cinema. And I came across three separate instances when Linda Williams had sort of called for somebody to study and write about lesbian-made pornography. So she said it once in Hardcore in 1989, said it again in 2004 in a collection porn studies that she she edited. 
And then she said it yet again in 2014 in sort of the state of the field essay called Pornography, Porn, Porno, Thoughts on a Weedy Field. And sort of like the third time whenever I read that, I was like, okay, well, Linda Williams has told everyone that we need to do this. So I'm just going to do what Linda Williams has told me to do. So, um, yeah, so Linda Williams is probably, as I think is the case for most folks working in porn studies, is sort of the central influence. Um, she has sort of in many ways made sort of the template for doing this kind of work. And then there's sort of several influences that, um, that have really sort of gotten me here and that continue to inform my work. Two of the most recent are Peter Alalunas's work on video, um, on video pornography and smutty little movies, that's the name of his book. And then Lynn Comella's book is sort of an ethnography of feminist sex toy businesses, an ethnography and then also history of sex toy businesses. So those are sort of the two most immediate influences for me. And they're just fantastic books. I think that everybody should read them regardless of your um, the sort of field that you're in. And then I'm also just really still inspired by a lot of the feminist scholarship that came out of the 90s. Um, they're sort of like too long of a list for me to get into. But I think that so much of that work was just really, really rich and continues to be exciting in a way that a lot of work sort of, you know, a few decades out does not tend to be. So I, I keep going to a lot of that, a lot of that sort of early um, feminist, feminist scholarship. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so I first became of your work through Archive Trouble, the, the piece of work that you were uh, produced fairly recently. And it, and it just really struck a chord with me. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I was really pleased when the recent BAFTS reading group also picked it up as a, as a piece of work to look at. I thought, fantastic, I can get to talk to people about this. Um, and yeah, I just found um, the, 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 the fact that the, it was a piece of work in so many ways about process as well as results. I found that really, really interesting. Um, I do a an undergraduate module with students that I teach where we teach them about dealing with material culture and the importance of material culture and not just, um, how could I put this? It's perfectly fine to write an undergraduate essay that's a, a textual analysis of a film uh, that's just, you know, looking at a couple of scenes from a film, but actually it might be more interesting or you might be doing something a little bit more different if you wanted to look at the poster or the trailers or, you know, the various other bits of material culture. Um, so I, I've, I've, I found your work really interesting. So I wondered, could you tell me a little about how you came to the archive that you, you were writing about in, in that article? Yeah, I, so I was not trained in sort of like historic, like historiographical methods or archival research. I am in an English department that is very much sort of by the book textual analysis, although of literature, it's not really a film it's not sort of a film-oriented department at all. And my advisor is actually a historian, so um, like very sort of old-school film historian. So I did have that influence and that support for, for this kind of work, but it was not sort of part of my, my training. So I really had to figure it out as I was going along. But in terms of coming to the archive, that, that was in many ways necessitated by sort of the objects that I'm looking at, because even if I had wanted to do a textual analysis, I couldn't because I couldn't see the films. <laughs> they they weren't anywhere. 
Um, you know, so these are these are pornographic films, but they were also shot on video. And in that sense, they're sort of disposable objects historically, just in terms of sort of their materiality. We don't really value anything that was shot on video. I think that we're starting to sort of come around on that, but for a very long time, nobody was really interested in them the way that they might have been in, you know, like celluloid. Um, and then also pornography too, of course, is seen as a disposable object because it's not seen as having sort of any inherent aesthetic value. Maybe it has political or historical value, but we, we I think, are often loath to consider it having any aesthetic value, particularly if it's shot on video. So we might have a lot of respect for, uh, you know, sort of the golden age films, which were shot on film and exhibited theatrically. But whenever it sort of comes to the 1980s, there has not until very recently been sort of a push to get those materials digitized and available for, you know, just sort of anybody to watch and to look at. And even still for queer or lesbian uh, shot on video texts, pornography, it's available like one place. Um, so uh, I couldn't have done a textual analysis even if I wanted to because I couldn't watch the, mo the videos, I couldn't watch the movies. So I had to sort of go into the archive anyway just to see them. But also I knew that I was not particularly interested in questions of representation, both because those had sort of already been written out about a little bit, um, but I was interested in sort of the industry history. And as anybody sort of getting into industry history knows or sort of coming out of industry history, sort of the, the most important information is in deeply unsexy documents like editorial meeting minutes, um, sort of production notes, business records, you know, business correspondence, materials like that. And I was really, really lucky in that the women who were creating lesbian produced pornography commercially for the first time, they knew that what they were doing was historically important and also unprecedented. And so a few of them, not all of them, I wish more of them had, had done so, but a few of them did save all of the papers related to what they were doing. And they were in two archives. So it sort of started there. And then as I started realizing I needed more material, I just started tracking everything down, um, you know, across sort of several archives in, in North America. And I was really fortunate to sort of get several research fellowships and grants that allowed me to go to those archives. If I had not gotten that material support, I don't know that I would have been able to go into them. Um, but yeah, so that's how I wound up at the archive. I sort of was forced into it by by the objects that I was looking at. And I'm, I'm glad that I was because it's been... It's, I've really enjoyed the time that I've spent in them, and I think it's probably the most exciting and, for me, rewarding part of graduate school so far. Brilliant. Thank you. I mean, it sounds to me as well like um, um, in no way, shape or form is this a lesser project. This is just a very, very different project that does some very, very different and much needed things as well. Like you talk about the idea of the less sexy side of pornography. Well, you know, if we don't if we don't have that stuff, it doesn't get made, does it? You know, so that that's great. Um, I wonder, um, 
I'm thinking here about um, the sort of your broader project. It seems to be engaging with these issues around sort of access and visibility, and then by implication, these ideas of sort of ownership and agency as well. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on where you fit in with that, you know, sort of as, you know, like your responsibility as a historian, but maybe your responsibility as a woman as well. Yeah, of course. That is kind of a hard question to answer because it's difficult to imagine yourself as the subject of history. I think that very few of us sort of do imagine ourselves in that way. Um, Some folks definitely do, and I'm very glad that they do because then they donate their papers. But yeah, so... I, I always go back and I, I feel like I've just sort of repeated this so many times that it might not be meaningful anymore, but I think that it is really meaningful. Um, there was sort of a conversation I was having with historian Kate McKinney and it came out of their presentation at uh, a previous SCMS, Society for Cinema and Media History um, Studies, sorry. And in their in their presentation, they were talking about sort of the difficulty of preserving lesbian pornographic materials. And they talked about sort of what happens on the back end of the institutional side. And one of the things that they had pointed out is that in in sort of archival positions or in the archives in terms of where the personnel are and where they are in terms of sort of the hierarchy and who who gets to build collections, who gets to decide what the archive is going to seek out um, or or the kinds of donators that they're going to court, that there's a real overrepresentation of gay men in those positions and that the result of that is that there tends to be an overrepresentation of gay male texts. And she's um, they were speaking specifically about sort of the context of the community queer archives. And so that just really got me thinking about the extent to which a, a sort of personal investment in in something like maybe in a historical moment or in a certain kind of media object, a personal investment is really what drives whether or not that object sort of gets entered into the historical record and whether or not scholarship gets done on it. So one of the things that I think about a lot is this production community, you know, the Dyke pornography production community, it was so interesting and what they were able to accomplish with the few resources that they had is just incredible. But also there's sort of really important media history moments that are embedded within this. You know, so here's an example. Um, one sort of component of dyke pornography was video, but then there was also a print magazine called On Our Backs. And I was speaking to the two founders of that magazine, and they told me that they got a Mac computer in 1984 and published everything from the second, um, the second issue onward on the Mac. And whenever I was going to do sort of historical research on that, I found out that they were actually using the Mac for commercial desktop publishing well in advance of sort of other folks in the publishing industry. So just incredibly early adopters of this material so even just in sort of a media history, um, you know, sort of approach, like thinking about what that means. So I was just really amazed that it had never been written about. And it's something that still sort of baffles me that nobody has attended to this material until, you know, um, the last five years, whenever I have sort of started looking into the industry history. And 
you know, I think when you sort of look at the field, like you can get a sense of what kinds of texts are people invested in and how that drives the formation of the field as a whole. And so I think in terms of how I might be placed within this history, I think I just care about these kinds of texts in a way that I know other folks do as well, but I don't know, like if nobody shows up on the scene and has an investment in a certain sort of object or a certain community, then the scholarship is just not going to get, it's just not going to get made, or at least it's not going to get made for a while. So I think about it in that sense, like how important it is for for folks' natural interests to sort of be um, nurtured the way that mine were. My committee easily could have shut this project down or told me that it wasn't feasible or that, you know, there wasn't anything there, but my interest and my investment was really nurtured. And I really hope that by sort of working on these materials that there are um, some material changes in terms of, I hope that that folks working in the archives see them as valuable now, see like, oh, there is a scholarly interest or there is historical interest here. So maybe they're more likely if one of those videos comes across, you know, their desk to say like, no, absolutely, we need to we need to archive this. But also too, I hope that more folks study them, that, that there is sort of an opening of the door. I really hope that that's what this project, what this project does. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I was just going to ask you just a, a little spin-off question, actually. The stuff that I write on is classical era Hollywood. Um, so I'm looking at stuff generally from the 30s and 40s. So, you know, generally, um, the people who I'm writing about are deceased. And obviously, you just articulated a moment ago that you've spoken to some of the people who produce these materials. Um, how do you find that experience sort of, you know, is there a pressure there, you know, to sort of to please um, those individuals or appease those individuals? Or, you know, how does that work? That, that seems a, a completely alien experience to me. I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's I have this I've had this conversation before because, you know, sort of um, like friends that I've made in graduate school, a lot of them work in sort of the 17th and 18th century on on book history and women's print culture. And we always have this conversation, you know, for them, because the folks that they're studying are so long gone and mine are, you know, like I'm Facebook friends with a couple of them. Um and it is very strange. And there is sort of that difficulty. I want them to like the work that I'm doing. And I had some difficulty getting some of them to talk to me, actually. Uh, and I think that they were just very wary because that historical moment in the 1980s, it was at the height of the feminist sex wars. And there was so much animosity and there was so much violence too that was directed at sex positive feminists, but also the, the women that were making pornography specifically that I think that they just endured so much abuse. And then also were just so taxed by their experience because it was really, really difficult making these videos, making the magazine that they were a little wary to sort of wade back into that history, but they were also a little wary of me. Like, you know, what is your angle on this? Are you coming in to sort of call us pimps for the porn lobby, which is what a lot of the anti-pornography feminists were calling them at that point. 
and one of the things that I actually hoped that the essay we're talking about, Archive Trouble, what I hoped that it would do would sort of demonstrate to them um, the approach that I was taking to this history and the feelings that I had about what they did, you know, that it would sort of make them trust me a little bit more. And it did actually do that. I sent it to Debbie Sundahl, who uh, was really sort of the beating heart at the center of a lot of this. And, you know, she told me that she really enjoyed it. And then she felt like, like my work would correct a lot of incorrect historical assumptions about what was happening then. And she did just really give me a lot of validation that I, I still like cherish and hold to my heart. Um, and so I do, I do want them to like the project and I want them to feel seen by it. And I want their labor to be recuperated in terms of its historical value. That is really important to me, but at the same time, I do sometimes worry because I think we, I think we often have a particular purpose or intent in mind and a particular understanding of what our actions mean within sort of our context, but, you know, we're so in it. Um, and so I think the difficulty with working on folks who are still alive is that they might disagree with your sort of assessment of the situation or some of your claims about what was important um, or how it sort of fit into larger historical narratives. And I think that can be difficult when you both have maybe a different interpretation of events. But I I have not gotten there yet. There's just bound to be, you know, like there's just bound to sort of be those um, those disagreements. But I hope that the integrity of the project and my like deep respect for them um, as collaborators in terms of how much information that they've given me and then also just as you know icons like they're they're feminist icons that that does come across um and and so there can be that sort of mutual understanding probably the most difficult part i would say about it is in terms of using in terms of using interviews as a source of information is that a lot of folks misremember things. So they might misremember sort of details or times. And so you have to go follow up a lot of that, um, you know, sort of in the archive or with sort of um, material records. And I think that that's when folks, people don't like to be told that they're misremembering something. You know, they have a lot built on top, on top of their, their memories or their recollections. But you do have to be careful to not necessarily take their recollections um, as historical record. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not it's not something I'm massively familiar with at all as a, as a researcher. Um I did a little bit of work around a, a theatre in London that specialized in um in nude performance and one of the ladies who performed there is still alive and sort of um keeps the memory of the theatre, you know, sort of you know she's sort of the unofficial historian and and interviewing her was absolutely fascinating. But in all sorts of ways it is that whole thing of um, you're not necessarily inter- in interviewing for facts and, and figures and, you know, it's 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 other bits that you're looking for. But I think people get caught up in, you know, they assume that that is what you're looking for, don't they? And and, and it's not necessarily um, at all. It's, it's sort of spotting trends and so on and so forth, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I'm just thinking about snobbery that I have encountered um, academically, 
um, but also um, a, a sort of a blind panic that I've encountered from students as well when I've engaged them with pornographic materials as well. Um, and then, you know, sort of freaking out that, oh, you never told me we were going to be looking at this. I thought we were doing film history. This isn't film history. I'm like, well, it is. It's 80 year old porn. It is film history. It's about Cary Grant and it's pornographic. It's film history, <laughs> you know. So I just wondered if, you know, sort of thinking about, you know, the complications that, you know, any additional complications that you encounter around your work because of the pornographic nature of what you're looking at, essentially. Yeah, that's that's always sort of the interesting question. Um, and, you know, one thing that I'll sort of say is that I I went into grad school thinking I was going to work on classical Hollywood cinema. And the questions that I was interested in actually led me toward pornography. Um, and I think that one of the things that that trajectory really shows is that the the sort of idea that we have that there's sort of culture or there's cinema and then sort of somewhere in the shadowy basement separated from all of the other things is pornography, which is sort of its own object and its own um, sort of sector of human life that we would really rather not talk about, even if we're consuming it, which... I think um, a lot of folks are, you know, like we have data to show that this is actually a pretty regular aspect of, um, of folks' media consumption behaviors. And one of the things that I sort of learned, and, you know, this came out of Linda Williams, but also out of a lot of, um, you know, sort of the, the early feminist film history work that was looking at all of the sexual politics that were embedded within classical Hollywood films is that just because, you know, the hardcore action wasn't being shown on screen doesn't mean that there was no very deep erotic investment in these texts on the part of audiences. But also the texts themselves were not naive about the kinds of pleasures that they were offering. Um, you know, and a lot of them were prurient pleasures, you know, like Cary Grant put, you know, case in point, um, like, how much film culture was motivated by like Cary Grant's ass, you know, like, let's, be, let's be real about that. Um, so one of the things that Linda Williams says, and that I always, I, I really internalized at uh, an early stage in terms of my graduate education was that pornography exists on sort of a spectrum along with every other sort of form of moving image making. Um, and it's not separate from sort of broader film history or broader film culture. That separation is the product of selective attention to the reputable in quotation marks. Um, because whenever you do sort of start like pulling at the threads, you recognize the extent to which pornographic materials are so interwoven into the rest of film history and the rest of our, um, our film consumption habits. So I'm thinking um, specifically of uh, a book called um, Hollywood v. Hardcore. I am blanking on the, uh, the author's name right now. But that, that book is incredible because it's a history about how mainstream Hollywood consolidated its market share by sort of repudiating, um, you know, uh, hardcore films through sort of the construction of like the triple X category and then how pornographic films were appropriating that designation in order to stake out their own market share. Like, oh, well, we're offering you the really good stuff that Hollywood won't show you. So 
I mention all of that just to show the extent to which I do not conceive of pornography as being a separate category of media text. And I, in fact, think that by ignoring it or sort of pushing it to the side or submerging it um, under implicit sort of respectability politics, that you actually miss out on a lot of important sort of media studies. Um, I'm teaching a class on adaptation right now and this week that we're, this week actually, we're talking about the pleasures of adaptation and about pornography adaptation and what does it mean that we're generating, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of pornographic adaptations, not to mention fanfic. What does that say about our relationship to, you know, non-pornographic texts? So, um, you know, there's that piece of it. And it is the case that some folks think that pornography is an inherently bad aesthetic object, an inherently bad political object, and that it isn't worthy of scholarly study, and that by studying it, we're somehow assenting to or legitimating, you know, what one might consider to be its worst impulses. But I, I think that that is actually not the majority anymore. Um, and this is something that I was really concerned about going into this project. Like, am I going to be able to get any fellowships? Am I going to be able to get any grants? Am I going to be able to get a job? And I have encouraged, or I have experienced so much encouragement and support. And I have won grants and I have won fellowships, you know, that sort of implicit validation of my work. So I actually haven't had to experience very much sort of pushback within um, sort of academic circles um, about about what I'm doing. I always say, though, in terms of these texts that I'm trying to study, one of the things that makes them sort of so fragile in um, sort of a figurative sense and, you know, absent from so many archives is that they're really facing compound marginalization. So not only are they women's texts, which have historically been devalued um, in terms of sort of their seriousness, their cultural value, um, they're also on video. And like I mentioned earlier, video is usually considered a bad aesthetic object. And then, you know, there are sex films too, which we assume to be disposable, if not, you know, worthy of like our revulsion. Um, you know, so sort of like having those three strikes against them, it was really difficult to get them made. It was difficult to um, get folks to buy into the idea of them in the, in the moment. And then even now, you know, it's, it's difficult, I think, to recognize them as something that needs to be archived, although folks are definitely doing that work. Um, so yeah, the pornographic aspect definitely complicates things, but it complicated things at the moment of their creation. So in some ways, it's just the ongoing legacy of the production circumstances, if that makes sense, that, um, that it is a little complicated. Thank you. I, I found that absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm really obsessed with the sort of the politics of the reputable. Um, and like you say, you know, Hollywood itself is, a, is you know, is a sort of uh, problem, problematic as an industry anyway, and is judged as being improper in so many ways anyway, doesn't it? Isn't it? You know, 
Um, mm-hmm. that, that's really interesting as well, the way you're talking about the way that you are led ultimately, you know, being interested in one area and then slowly but surely your your research interests creeping into another area, you know, interest on interest on interest, so on and so forth. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Thank you mm-hmm. very much. Um, I'm going to, uh, I've got two more questions for you, if that's all right. I was going to ask you about, yeah. um, a bit more about process, if that's okay, about your sort of your procedure and, 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 and your, your, your experience. Um, I'm running um, a workshop uh, in a couple of months time with a colleague for early career researchers, sort of encouraging them to get into archival research and, you know, and sort of, you know, encourage them. And, you know, these are the benefits. This is, you know, how it's even easier than it ever has been before, because, you know, now we've got access to all these digital materials and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I just wanted to return to the title of your paper and you talk about this idea of archive trouble. So I'm just wondering if maybe given your experience and given that you mentioned as well, um, you learned on the job, so to speak, in that, you know, you would said, oh, I've not done this stuff before, which is exactly the same as my experience. I remember going to an archive for the first time and thinking, oh, holy God, I've been given money to do this and I, I don't have a clue what I'm doing here. This is awful. What if I mess it up? And then being paid to do that stuff for other people as well and just thinking, if I mess this up, this is awful. They'll want their money back. So I'm just wondering if uh, you could maybe talk a little bit about um, any tips or tricks that you would sort of recommend for people setting foot in the archive the first time. I think it's quite a an intimidating space for some people, even though archivists, in my experience, have seemed to be lovely people and have been really keen for you to get involved. Just wondered if maybe you could talk about, you know, sort of your experience of that and how you, you know, sort of negotiated that space. Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment of um, archivists and, and librarians in the archives. I think, I think maybe like we have um, internalized as children sort of the representation of like the mean librarian who's like yelling at you to be, or like snapping a ruler and telling you to be quiet. Um, when in reality, uh, you know, archivists are, you know, I think all of us are sort of nerds, right? Like we're interested in, in minutia, we're interested in, you know, sort of very specific things that we become, um, you know, sort of deep experts in, in a way that, like, there's kind of an obs- obsessiveness over like trivia that goes along with this work. And, um, you know, like archivists are one of us. So um, oftentimes they do have sort of a a passionate attachment to the collections that they're overseeing and they love for other people to come in and sort of nerd out over those collections and see new things in them that maybe they hadn't seen or talk to them about the insights that they have into the collection. Um, You know, like, like any of us, they want their work to be validated and people going into the archives is a form of validating their work. Um, so yeah, I, I have had nothing but positive interactions with every single person that I've encountered in the archives, including like the security guard. Um, and there is sort of a really cool thing that happens whenever you're doing sort of long-term research. So if you're, if you're in an archive, like every day for two to three weeks, um, you know, you develop relationships because you are sort of going into work with these folks every single day, you see the same people, you go through the same process. So it is a really special experience in terms of the interpersonal dynamics. Um, For somebody just starting out, I would say, if you can 
start by just going into a really low stakes archival situation. So for me, we, we have a special collections here on my campus and they do have a queer collection that we just got a couple years ago. Um, and I started out just by kind of going over there and like poking around in it, not for any particular reason. I would just sort of go, you know, look at things that looked interesting um, or sort of like just go ask the woman who runs that collection, you know, like what the most sort of like interesting thing that they had gotten in recently was. And that really helped me to sort of dip my toe in the waters because I sort of understood the like the very basic mechanics of the process itself. But then also I felt a little comfortable in that environment of the reading room. And then um, I also too just kind of like, how do I put it? Um, I realized that I enjoyed the process of sort of going and digging around in old things and looking at them and getting a sense of sort of the moment in which they were made as well as what kinds of objects they are. So I would say that maybe start start small um, and before sort of you go out on, on a multi-week research trip. Um, uh, okay, so if you're doing a multi-week research trip, or even if you're just doing several days, that is sort of a different animal. And the the biggest thing I can say is that I think there's a misconception that, you know, you're going into the archive to read, you know, the files, like read, read the archive, like read what is there, the documents. Um, you are not. <laughs> You, your job whenever you get there is not to read through everything, but to take as many scans as you possibly can of um, the collection. And this is assuming that you were allowed to do so. Some, some archives do not allow this, but I have only been to one that didn't allow this, um, but they would create scans for me. But yeah, so your, your goal is to create as many scans or take photos of as much as you possibly can while you're in the archives because you are never going to have enough time to read everything uh, ever. Like even if you have three weeks, three weeks is still never going to be enough to get as much as you need out of the archives. So the goal is to create scans of as much as you possibly can while you're there. And then whenever you get home, you can look at all of your scans, you know, in your pajamas at your leisure and refer back to those materials too because you need to sort of keep them because, you know, a year and a half later, and this happens to me all the time, a year and a half later, I'm like, what was I doing again? <laughs> and so I have to, or even when I'm feeling sort of stuck in terms of my writing process or my thinking process, I'll go back and revisit, you know, the primary materials and get inspiration or, you know, sort of get a new idea, see it with fresh eyes. So yeah, create scans. Um, and a one of the things that goes along with that is because you're gonna have so much data, you're gonna have so many images, you, um, you have to get really organized. And this is the thing that I am not great at. Um, I am not great at organization like of this, this level. So I find I this say, really reassuring that you're saying this. <laughs> oh yeah. It's such a mess. Um, and this is part of my academic process in general. I had just posted on Twitter actually a photo um, and I was like, why am I like this? 
And it's a screen cap of the folder where my dissertation proposal is. And I literally have five different versions that say proposal final. I have no idea which one is the final draft actually. And it's sort of the same with my archival material. I did not plan very well in this sense. And so in many ways, I'm constantly trying to organize and reorganize photos that I took, you know, two, three years ago. Um, but there's a lot of different software out there. Uh, I use an Airtable database, but it's pretty expensive, um, but it's working for me right now. But I am going to have to try and find a way to sort of move all that data into something else. So I would say start experimenting with um, different softwares before you go so that you're not trying to figure out where to put everything um, once you get back. But yeah, so find a system for organizing. And you might not even use software. A lot of folks just organize it in folders, you know, on their computer and that works It's just, it's that labeling thing again. I, that, that's how I do it. It's, you know, sort of, it is literally, I've got specific flash drives that I then back up and they've just got folders. And, and like you say, it's that whole thing of making sure um, each file is labeled subtly differently you know but enough for you to be able to tell and yeah and and you you kind of learn that the hard way as well don't you really it's it's not great always <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's sort of a mess um but you know the entire process is sort of well i mean this is writing history right is it's trying to impose some level of order on a an unruly thing, um, a thing that does not sort of come to us like already ordered. And um, I think that that's definitely sort of archival research is it's just like you're just buried in sort of information and data and figuring out how to sort it and make make sense of it. And it's unique to every person, but definitely try and figure out the way that's going to work, the organizational system that's going to work best for you. Um, and then just like I would say, uh, a thing that I didn't know the first two archives I went to, and luckily, or I didn't think of the first two archives I went to, um, is when you're taking, this seems really obvious, but whenever you're taking photographs of your object, um, make sure that you're also taking a photo of the folder that has the actual information on the tab that tells you what box it was in and also what folder it is, because let me tell you what is really terrible is two months later realizing that you have no way to cite that object because you don't know where it was in the archive. Um, I learned that one the hard way. Oh no. Oh, bless you. <laughs> well, that that's just stupendously useful advice to, to, to offer. Thank you very, very much. It's really appreciated, Desiree. So I'm just going to ask you one last question then. Um, your Archive Trouble essay, you wrote that quite a while back now. Obviously, you've, you've been doing subsequent work. So I just wanted to ask you really about where next? Where are you going next? What, what, you know, what are you on with? Well, I'm still trying to finish. Uh, I'm still trying to finish my dissertation. So I... The way that that article came to be was really, really lovely, and people have responded really well to it, which is just, it's really, it means a lot um, to, to sort of see that it has captured folks' interest. Um, so I, I wrote that when I had just begun my dissertation research, like right sort of at the very beginning of it. And wow. since then... <laughs> Yeah, well, I wrote it, like you were saying, you know, it's sort of a reflection on process or method. I wrote it while I was in that process. So I was I was literally 
in Cornell's human sexuality archives during the day. And then in the evening, I would sort of pack up and go to a cocktail bar and I would sit and I would write that essay. So it actually got written while I was doing archival research. Um, since then, I do have sort of more of a research article that has been accepted to Journal of Cinema and Media Studies that is, it's sort of um, like the product of this research. It gives sort of a capsule industry history of um, the sort of production community that I'm looking at. So that will be coming out sometime. <laughs> um, it's, it's the way with these things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, academic publishing is so slow, but also JCMS right now has just, um, they're sort of instituting an online open access component of the journal. And so I think the publication schedule will get sort of um, reordered as people choose to, to be published in sort of the online um, issue. So I'm not sure. It, it's coming. Um, probably, I would say like 22 is probably when it'll be out, 2022. So that is in the pipeline. Um, I think I have a conversation with Lynn Comella, who's one of my, you know, huge academic influences and just a really fantastic example of just like a methodical, detail-oriented and really responsible scholar. Um, I have a conversation with her coming out in a forthcoming issue of Synoptique. Um, I'm not sure when that issue will be out. It's a special, special issue on the uses of pornography. And then other than that, I am just trying desperately to finish my dissertation. <laughs> I'm actually behind. Um, I, am, I am behind right now. I'm sort of a year over deadline. So, um, you know, solidarity to anybody who's in the same situation with any of their projects right now. But my, yeah, my, so my is... partner is literally in the very final stages of submitting his PhD. And uh, yeah, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, in the last, you know, this year has not made it easy. Um, it has, it has not. And I, you know, I try to be pretty transparent with that stuff online, um, on Twitter, because I think we just all assume that everybody's being productive all the time, but I actually hadn't been able to work on it since March. So I'm just now sort of starting to get, um, get back into the flow. So hopefully dissertation will be finished and then I can start thinking about maybe turning it into a book. Superb. Oh, I look, I look forward to, to reading it as a monograph. That would be absolutely superb. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Desiree. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Your research is really, really fascinating stuff and very, very timely and needed. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. A huge thanks to Desiree for speaking with me and being such a pro, given the absolute racket that the workmen were making outside. If you're interested in checking out Desiree's work, there's plenty of it out there, but I would recommend Archive Troubles, Problems in Researching Lesbian Adult Media, which is available in the journal Feminist Media Histories. All that remains is for me to say thanks to John Ashbrook of Radio Pictures for his tech input, to Desiree for agreeing to chat and for being such an engaging conversation, to the Shannon Riley Trio for allowing me the use of their song Trouble as the Here's Looking at You theme tune, and to you for listening to the podcast, which is now available through iTunes as well as the Here's Looking at You website. 
Feel free to offer your opinions or suggestions for potential interviewees on Twitter at Dr Smut or on the Here's Looking At You website, where you can also sign yourself up to be updated when the latest podcast drops. I'll be back soon for another conversation about the intersection of gender, sexuality and performance in film, TV and theatre. So until next time, here's looking at you.